0: Well, we are in Genesis, and uh, Genesis chapters 1 through 11 have a number of origin stories, and that's what we've been focusing on uh, during this time. There are four main origin stories, and we've added one into the mix because there were five weeks in January that we had to cover. So, uh, but here's the main origin stories we find. Creation, uh, the story of the origin of the world and the universe and everything in it, right? Uh, The fall of humanity. Is right in there in Genesis chapters 1 through 11. We find that. The story, the troubling story of Cain and Abel. And then the story, my least favorite of all, of the flood is in there as well. And today we're going to look at the story of Babel. And some people pronounce it Babel. However, you want to pronounce it. In Sumerian, the word means gate to God. But it sounds like the Hebrew word for confusion. And both those aspects are part of the story that we're looking at today. In fact, in the rest of the Old Testament, this word that we translate here, Babel, is actually translated fully as Babylon. And Babylon is what I promised my wife I wouldn't do during the sermon, Did you because that was a joke. Babylon. Okay, anyway, I'll, I won't go there anymore. But it's interesting that the rest of the Old Testament translate this word, Babel, as Babylon. And Babylon, we kind of know, it's familiar to us. And that's an important aspect to this passage as well. Well, when we're in Sunday school, if you went to Sunday school, or even if sometimes you teach Sunday school, uh, we sometimes have a hard time dealing with these stories. And so we make them really simple. And that's not a bad thing. Uh, The problem is sometimes we don't move on from that simplicity as adults. But in Sunday school, we ask the question, why do we worship God? And the answer is, because God made the world. It's good. Nothing wrong with that. Or why is the world so messed up? Uh, It's because we broke the rules, according to the story, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. Or how many animals did Moses take into the ark? None. Noah took animals into the ark. Some of you caught that, right? Just testing you here. But we do this, very simple questions, very simple answers, and that's not bad. That's good. That's a starting point. But we are now adults. And part of the burden of being an adult is we get to look at these stories again and wrestle with them on a slightly deeper level. Because I think that there's more to these stories than the Sunday School answers. There's more complexity. There's more difficulty. I actually think there's more beauty in the stories than we realize. And this is my main point. There is more that points us to Jesus in these stories than we realize. And that's the direction that I've been wanting to take all throughout the series is to allow these stories ultimately to move us toward Jesus. So when we hear the story of creation, we're reminded in the New Testament that in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? When we hear the story of the fall of humanity, we're reminded in the New Testament that just as in Adam all die, so in Jesus all are made alive. Right? That's the movement that we have. When we hear the story of of Cain and Abel and Abel dying and his, his blood crying out from the ground, we turn to the New Testament and we see this. The blood of Jesus speaks better things than that of Abel. Abel cried out for revenge. Jesus cries out forgiveness, right? So we're moving toward Jesus. And in the flood, even the story of the flood, we're moved toward Jesus in the New Testament where it says, God is patient with us, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. That's the movement we have to take when we go through these stories together. And I think that's the best way to read these stories. I know that I've had conversations with a number of you over the last number of years, about how do we access these stories in the Old Testament that are often so difficult and sometimes troubling. And, and that's my answer. <laughs> Let the stories move you toward Jesus. That's not a cop-out. If you want to explore all the different nuances and the troubles and the moral ambiguity and everything else, go for it as long as you end up with Jesus. <laughs> that's the point. That's what the whole story drives us to. That's what the New Testament does with these Old Testament stories. And that's what we've been doing during our time here over the month of January. So what is the Sunday school question of the day for today's story? The question is, why are there so many languages in the world? I love that that Samuel spoke in Korean today. Just reminded us of this question. Why are there so many languages? The Sunday school answer is because God multiplied the languages at Babel. But even as I say that, there's a little bit of a problem. Because if you turn back to chapter 10, you'll find out that the people were already scattered into nations. In fact, at least three times in chapter 10, it specifically says that they were divided according to their own languages already. So what's happening here? There's also another kind of moral or spiritual dilemma. Because if this is simply how all the languages of the world developed then our understanding would be that the multiplication of languages is actually a punishment from God and not a blessing or a beauty. And so what is going on in this text? How are we to read this? How are we to, um, how does this text move us to Jesus? So let's read this together in Genesis chapter 11. Most of the other passages, all the other passages that we've read, they have like 24 verses or more. This is much shorter. It's actually a beautifully scripted, every word essential kind of passage. So I'm going to read Genesis chapter 11, starting at verse 1. At one time, all the people of the world spoke the same language and used the same words. As the people migrated to the east, they found a plain in the land of Babylonia and settled there. They began saying to each other, Let's make bricks and harden them with fire. In this region, bricks were used instead of stone, and tar was used for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build a great city for ourselves with a tower that reaches into the sky. This will make us famous and keep us from being scattered all over the world. But the Lord came down to look at the city and the tower the people were building. Look, he said, the people are united, and they all speak the same language, After this, nothing they set out to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down and confuse the people with different languages, and they won't be able to understand each other. There's a little bit of humor in this, maybe. Like, wouldn't that be hilarious? If just one day, all of a sudden, you couldn't understand your workmate? Or maybe terrifying, I don't know. Verse 8. In that way, the Lord scattered them all over the world, and they stopped building the city. That is why the city was called Babel. Because that is where the Lord confused the people with different languages. In this way, he scattered them all over the world. Okay. I think our tendency, our bias, wherever we got this, probably from the church, and a long time in it, our tendency is to view most of these passages in Genesis chapter 1 through 11 as kind of punitive passages, as judgment narratives. That's what we tend to focus on when we we read it. And when we think about it, it seems like God is constantly punishing people for their sin. He's constantly setting them up for success and they're constantly going the wrong way. It's like herding cats. No wonder it said it grieved the Lord that he made humanity because they won't keep going in the right direction. It reminds me, you know, when you're driving the car and you've got young kids in the back and uh, you drive for a while and you let the noise kind of escalate until the point of no return where you yell back at them, don't make me pull this car over. It feels like God is pulling the car over a lot during these first 11 chapters of Genesis. And so that's one way to read it is simply judgment narratives and punitive action on God's behalf. However, There's another reading of this, I think. If we're careful and if we're thoughtful, I think actually every one of these passages fully displays the grace of God. Think about even the fall, the fall of humanity. Adam and Eve set up for success. You can choose thousands of good choices, but not this one. And what do they do? The same thing that we all do, right? We choose the thing we're not supposed to choose. And they were warned, if you choose that thing, you're going to die. But what happens after they take the fruit that they're not supposed to? They don't actually die right away. God doesn't terminate them. Instead, what does God do? He actually gives them the promise of a future, and then he makes clothes to cover their shame. That's the surprise twist in the whole story. We expect the hard-handed fist of God in judgment, but instead, God shows his grace, which comes through. Or think of the story of Cain and Abel. Even when Cain is getting angry and when his anger is taking over his, his whole being, what does God do? God comes and reasons with him. Cain, look out, bud. You're going in the wrong direction with this. You've got to deal with your anger now. And when Cain still refuses, then God warns, it, warns him. Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Deal with it now before it's too late. And even after Cain doesn't listen to God and kills his brother, God doesn't terminate him. What does God do? He actually protects him. He makes sure that Cain isn't killed by others. That's the surprising twist in the story. Or even think of Noah in this this awful judgment that comes, and we could just be overwhelmed with the judgment of the flood. In the midst of that, God still provides a way of escape, And he prolongs this building of the way of escape, the ark, so that others might have time to repent. And that's part of the grace of God that I think breaks through these judgment narratives. And that's what leads us to the gospel of Jesus. This grace of God breaking through judgment. So as we come to the story of Babel, of not only the tower, but the whole city that's involved, is this a punishment passage Or can we still see God's grace? That's our challenge for this morning. So if you're up for it, just stay with me for another 15 minutes and we'll get to the end. All right. Well, when we come to the problem in the passage, we have to ask the question why did God come down and scatter the people? What was the issue? And it's a little bit nebulous in the passage, isn't it? And so there's three, at least, three suggested solutions or three suggested um, uh, points of connection for this problem. The first one is this. Pride and rebellion. And we read that in the passage. Let's make a name for ourselves. We're going to reach the heavens, right? Right? The sense of pride and rebellion and God comes down and essentially humbles humanity and puts humanity in its place. And that's maybe one of the things that's happening here. Second thing could be this. It shows the desire of humanity to remain in one place in contradiction to the express command of God to multiply and fill the earth. So the idea is that humanity was set to be the stewards of all the earth, the stewards of God's good creation. And so humanity was meant to multiply and spread. Humanity is also the image bearers of God, and so we are meant to multiply and spread to share God's image throughout creation. And so one way of looking at this passage is to say that these people were defying God's direct order, and they were going to huddle together, and make their own little world on their own terms. And God says, no, that's not the plan. That's another way of reading it. Okay, here's a third way. This might be somewhat new for some of you. A third way of reading it is to see this as a critique, a critique of the totalizing power of empire and of empire building. Uh, particularly of the Babylonian empire that destroyed Judah and took the people away into exile. And I think that's part of what we have to take seriously in these passages is how the original readers would have read these texts. And the Babylonian captivity had a profound impact on the assembly of all these texts in the Old Testament and how they were interpreted and read and shared. And maybe part of this is a critique of empire building, of the tendency of humanity to want to create the superior race, the superior people. And so this is what's happening here. All of this might be going on at the same time as we go through the passage together. So let's dig into it a little bit more. There's a few key phrases in the passage that kind of hints at a deeper level of what's happening here. First phrase is this in verse two. It says, as the people migrated east. Whenever you hear that in the Old Testament, alarm bells should go off because usually when they're migrating east, they're heading in the wrong direction. A lot of people felt that about Christine and I when we moved from Nelson to Calgary. It's not true. It was one of the greatest moves in our lives uh, to be here. Don't tell the Nelson people that. Some of them are watching today. But, but in the Bible... When we read of people moving east, generally it's an indication that they're moving in the wrong direction. give you a couple of examples. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, they were sent east of the garden. When Lot chose his property, he chose it east and pitched his tent towards Sodom. That was a bad move, right? When the Israelites are in captivity, they are moved east when the Babylonian Empire took them right? And so this movement East is meant to be a kind of signal for us that the people are moving away from God's intended purposes and plans and moving in a direction that they're carving out for themselves. That's part of what we see in this text. Here, let's dig a little bit deeper. There's another phrase here that I find super, super interesting. The, uh, the author gives us this phrase that they made bricks and used bricks instead of stone. And most of us go, who cares? Use something, use some kind of building material. But why, why is this phrase so important that there's an explanatory note that in this region, which is modern day Iraq, in this region, they weren't able to use stones. They have to use bricks. And the author makes a point of saying they had to make bricks instead of stone. Now, the original hearers of this, the original learners, this might have conjured up the making of bricks in Egypt, in slavery, when they're forced to make bricks without straw. And so there is a sense of a dehumanizing empire building that's going on here, where they have to make these bricks in order to build these great structures. So a commentator uh, uh, did a bit of a devotional study on the idea of these bricks and how bricks are particularly unique. And he said this, there's four, at least four characteristics, characteristics about bricks. First of all, they are unnatural and artificial. You won't find a brick randomly occurring in nature. He says, secondly, they are identical and uniform. It's not easy to distinguish one brick from another. They're all just the same. Third, they're functionally undifferentiated and interchangeable. You can use a brick here, you can use a brick there, it doesn't matter. And then fourthly, they are all but worthless. So what if you lose a brick? There's hundreds of more just like it. So maybe in this passage, there's this idea of a dehumanizing empire building where we're just cogs in the machine where it doesn't really matter. We don't have any particular unique qualities. The dehumanizing of the the people in the city because they're they're expendable. They, They can fit anywhere. We can make more of them. That's kind of the maybe part of the concept here. Contrast that with what we learn in the New Testament, that God is building us into a spiritual house, that we are like living stones gathered together. Each and every one of us unique and different and naturally and beautifully made, finding a specific fit in the pattern of God's great house. That's the beautiful image. But bricks with tar, is meant to give us this kind of impression that what they were building was generic and maybe even awful. So that's part of it. Okay, one more thing in the passage that might give us a clue as to what's going on here as well they didn't just build a tower. We often talk about the Tower of Babel, but you won't find that anywhere in the passage. They were building a city with a tower as the centerpiece. And this tower was most likely something like a ziggurat, not a cigarette, right? That's something else. A ziggurat. And a ziggurat is not a pyramid. That's different. Again, ziggurats are actually um, dense and solid inside. They're, they're built with, um, with steps on the outside and then a staircase that leads to the top. And they aren't really temples. That's not the way they're used. Often the temple is built at the bottom of the ziggurat, right? At the top of the ziggurat, what they would build is a bedroom for the god, that might be surprising to you. Does God need a bed? Apparently he does. And so there's a bedroom from the God at the top of the ziggurat. The temple is at the bottom and the stairs are there so that God can easily access the temple and bless those people. The idea is this, if we can kind of manipulate God into hanging out here, if we make him super comfortable, then we'll receive the blessing and nobody else will. Maybe that's partly what's going on here. So the issue at hand was ego and the attempted manipulation of God. If they could build the ziggurat, they could essentially manipulate when and where God would send his blessing. That again is against God's intent and God's purposes in the world. And so all these things are at play. So when we add it all up together, we see a rebellious movement away from God's intended plan and purpose moving east. We see the formation of a dehumanizing civilization bent on empire building, right? That's what's happening here too. And we see the attempted manipulation of God to secure his blessing for me and me alone, hashtag blessed. I'm the only one blessed, right? And so all of this is going on in this passage as we dig in a little bit more. So what we see here is not so much God punishing the people as God taking preventative measures so that the people didn't get out of control. If they do this, if they're able to accomplish this kind of empire building, this kind of superior race, what's next? And God says, no, I prefer diversity over this weird uniformity that you're trying to build in this place. God is opposing and preventing the attempt at one centralized authority, the forced perpetual uniformity of language, the dehumanization of the people, the consolidation of power, the establishment of a master civilization, attempting to rival God himself. That's what God is stepping in to prevent so that his blessing might be shared with the whole world as he intended. So how does this story then lead us to Jesus? Because that's the important part, right? That's what we've been seeing all along As I let you digest some of those other thoughts. How does it lead us to Jesus? Well, in Acts chapter 2, we read an interesting story, and I'm going to turn to it now and read some of it. And it'll be familiar, I hope, to you. Acts chapter 2, Jesus has already ascended to heaven. He's ascended. No one had to build a staircase for him to get up and down. He ascended on his own. When he ascended to heaven, he gave his disciples a unique instruction. He said, gather in one place and wait for me. His instruction was to gather. And then it says in chapter 2, verse 1, On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames of tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. And when they heard the loud noise, everyone came running. And they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee. And yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, and we all hear these people speaking in our own language about the wonderful things that God has done. They stood there amazed and perplexed. What can this mean? What an amazing thing has happened and it's kind of a parallel. There's, there's an ascending to heaven, and then there's a descending of God. But instead of scattering, there's a gathering, and there's a speaking in their own language. The temptation here is to see Pentecost as a kind of reversal of Babel, but it's not quite that simple. In Pentecost, it's not that the Spirit speaks with one language. It's that the Spirit speaks your language. That's the amazing thing that's going on here. Matt Lynch says this, At Pentecost, God embraces language diversity. He doesn't destroy it. So yes, the Spirit reverses the imperial unification of Babylon, but not the multiplication of language. The point isn't that the Spirit speaks one language. Instead, the Spirit speaks your language, no matter who you are. Think about that for a moment. How many people here speak a language other than English? You raise your hand. Look, look around. This, this is, this is not punishment. This is, this is beauty. This is the diversity that God has in our world is beauty, and it's not that the Spirit calls us to speak one language. It's that the Spirit unifies us by speaking to us in our own language, and I think that is literally language, but it also means in our own situation. I love when um, Eric McComish, I'm going to pick on him this morning. I know he's right in front of Doug, and I just about made it to Doug, but I'll stop at Eric. No, this isn't a picking on. This is a, a sort of affirmation. One of the things I love about Eric is he goes to the skate park, and he hangs out with all the skater kids, and sometimes he makes them like hot dogs and unhealthy snacks. And um, he's like the Pied Piper of the skate park. And then he's, he's creating downstairs this sort of skate empire. Not quite, but, but Eric is able to speak the language of a particular culture that I have absolutely no connection with. And I think that's amazing. And as we multiply that over and over and over again, and we see the spirit mobilizing his church to speak in the language that people understand. I think it's beautiful and it's powerful. And so God is not anti-diversity or anti-language. It's quite the opposite, both in the story of Babel and in the story of Pentecost. And that's what we see. So I love that God promotes diversity and speaks to each one of us in a language that we understand. And that's the message today. God speaks your language. God meets us where we are. There's no need to build a tower to manipulate God and control His blessing. God's desire is actually that we proclaim this blessing, this good news, to all the earth, to all nations. And as we're going into all the world, that we share His blessing with everyone that we encounter. The ultimate goal is revealed to us in Revelation chapter 7, where it says this After this, I saw a vast crowd too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the lamb. And they're shouting with a great roar, salvation comes from our God. That's the image of the kingdom of God that we're drawn to. That's what Babel leads us to as we come through Pentecost and as we share God's blessing with the world around us. Let's pray today. Father, forgive us for our petty attempts to try and control you, to control your blessing, to keep it for ourselves, to pretend that somehow we have a corner on the market. (laughs) Father, help us to see this grand vision of yours, of a world that is blessed. Blessed because of your spirit moving among your people, blessed because of the creation that you've made for us. Help us to receive these good gifts and share them with others, just as you have shared your grace with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.